0: I found it really difficult to, to find out where the pork would come from. And it just really sparked a thing in me. And I was like, surely there must be a way to get good local pork. And I thought, all right, I can do this. I can just, I'll get a pig and I'll start growing our own meat. It won't be that hard. Surely I've grown every other kind of animal. Pigs won't be that difficult. My husband's like, what the hell are you doing with this pig? And I was like, it's all right. We're going to, you know, we're going to grow some pigs we're going to eat their produce. It's going to be great. And he's like, you don't have any farm. And I was like, it's all right. We'll work that out later.
1: This is The Crackling, I'm Anthony Huckstep. The determination to create a better world can be an intoxicating driving force for change. After growing up in a regional New South Wales town on a mixed cropping and cattle stud farm, Lauren Mathers felt a real connection to the land. While running a small food store she realised she couldn't source good local pork. Determined to stay local, she set about creating her own pig farm and now produces some of Australia's very best pork. Lauren, you grew up on a farm. What was life like on the farm back then?
0: Um, So, yeah, growing up on the farm was pretty amazing. We had 2,500 acres to roam across. We had uh, cattle, sheep... We grew rice and cereal crops, so there was always something happening. Mum and Dad were always working, and I just felt like we were outside all the time. We never watched telly. Mum just sort of basically kicked us out in the morning, and we didn't come home till nighttime. And I had a horse, so I'd ride my horse to my friend's place, like 12 k's away. And um, I just, we just, I don't know, we were really privileged. Just always up a tree, and or helping Mum and Dad. I remember, um, you know, helping Dad in the sharing shed. I'd take days off work and. Rouse about for him. I'd drive the snig bean on the tractors when we were harvesting, and oh, that was, I felt really felt really lucky that we got to experience all that.
1: What was food like? Um, take us to um, the kitchen in in your childhood. What sort of dishes did your parents pre- prepare?
0: Uh, mum's a re- mum's a really good cook, and her mum was a really good cook too. So I was always in the kitchen with mum. We we make cakes and cookies and. It Every, made everything from scratch always. Mum grew a lot of her own food as well. So we had a beautiful orchard and a veggie garden, which was, you know, pretty scary because we've got some snakes up here. But, um, you know, the food was always good. I can never remember eating a good pork roast, though, ever. Like it was just something that we never had. And when we ate it, it was just, you know, it was nothing special except for the crackle. Hmm. <laughs> But mom, yeah, mum was a good cook. She would experiment with like Thai and um, Vietnamese food and we never sort of went hungry and we grew, grew a lot of our own meat as well so we're always eating our own uh, cattle and cattle and sheep and chooks and a bit, you know, killing the roosters and the chooks when it was time to eat them and watching them run around the backyard with no heads. It was super entertaining. <laughs>
1: Now, you, you became a pig farmer later in uh, life, but there was a couple of things before that. What was the first sort of chosen vocation for you?
0: Well, I studied ag at uni and then um, quickly I went did science first actually and then went into journalism. So I did journalism for three years. Wow. Yeah, and I loved journalism, but I didn't finish the course. I just sort of grew tired of it and then I did um, – I've done lots of things. I did personal training and then – Um, loved that, did fitness and then went back, came back to Barham when I met Lockie, and worked at his trucking depots. He's got a transport company. So I worked there for a few years and just got really bored and just wasn't stimulating enough for me. So I went back to study ag and I did it through UNE at Armidale and um, I really loved that experience because I could still work. So I was the vet nurse in Barham for a few years and worked there while I studied. And then my first real job, I guess, like proper job um, for for what I trained for was uh, I was an environmental um, project officer out in the creek. So the creek that I grew up on, actually, my first job was to do an action plan, like environmental management plan for that creek. Yeah, it was awesome. So it was really close to my heart and I got to work really closely with all the farmers that I grew up with and... Um, So I spent most of my days having cups of tea and looking at their creek basically. It was a pretty sweet job. Um, But then I realised that this was around the time when the water was taken away from farms. It became separated and became a commodity. So farmers in the middle of the drought, they didn't have any water and they were really stressed and I could see their anguish and, um, you know, just the impact it was having on their mental health. And I thought, you know, there must be something that these guys can grow with less water that's high high value and it just got me thinking that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's another way to do this. And at the same time, like I finished that project and when Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister, he cut the funding for, for any of those sort of environmental um, jobs. He cut the funding for them through the CMA. So I opened up a food store with a childhood friend who also grew up in Barham and we focused it on, this was in 2008, so we focused on, you know, sourcing local produce and making really good coffee and working with those farmers to get their produce on the plates of local people. And it sort of was back then, it was just not heard of in the country. <laughs> it was really it was really progressive and um, the food store is still open today, um, you know, and it's great and she uses a lot of local produce. So... That sort of set that off and at the same time I started thinking that, you know, how good would a farmer's market be here and I want a bursary to travel to France to look at their farmer's markets and when I got back I um I left the Long Paddock, had a baby, started a farmer's market and started growing pigs at the same time. So, <laughs> so we couldn't because we couldn't get local, we couldn't get good pork. Like I remember cooking the pork at the Long Paddock, you know, classic pork belly, everyone want a pork belly, and, and mince to make dumplings and things. and It just, there was something about the pork that was really inconsistent and I was like, what's going on here? Why does that smell so bad? And Why does it taste so different? And I found it really difficult to, to find out where the pork had come from and it just really sparked a thing in me and I was like, surely there must be a way to get good local pork and I couldn't get it, especially not free range and then... When we spoke to other farmers, it was actually hard to get any information out of anyone and Belinda Hagen from Macaver Farm Foods, she was great. I remember speaking to her for hours on end about birches. and so I thought, all right, I can do this. I can just, I'll get a pig and I'll start growing our own meat. It won't be that hard. Surely I've grown every other kind of animal. Pigs won't be that difficult. And I remember going to pick up Doris from um, one of our neighbours. They rang and said, you know, we've got this pig she's um you know she's she we don't need her anymore like the kids aren't home anymore and they they, they're the ones who sort of got her in the first place so I went to pick up Doris classically just thought that I must have watched too many babe movies or something but I just I thought that she would just jump in the back of the trailer because you know pigs are smart and I was like get up get up and um she didn't you just took off obviously like it's bloody funny she took off across their orchard and here I am chasing this pig and the farmer wasn't home and he got home and he goes what are you doing I was like oh Doris is out and I can't get her back in he said oh yes you just need a bucket of food so he went and got the lesson number one was always move pigs with food and he got a bucket of milk and she went straight into the trailer and that's how it all started and I just we had no room on the farm like we were on a farm but we didn't own the land we just owned a house it was like two acres and um, yeah, brought her home, and Locke's like my husband was like, "What the hell are you doing with this pig?" And I was like, "It's all right. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna grow some pigs, and we're gonna eat their produce. It's gonna be great." And he's like, "We don't have any farm." And I was like, it's all right. We'll work that out later. Just anyway, he he just thought I was mad, and and then she got quite depressed. So we got another pig to keep her company, Wanda, and and then um, and then we found Betty. So we had these three pigs living in the orchard at our house. And I remember Locky just thinking it was outrageous but then I caught him one day you know giving Doris a pat over the fence and he was like scratching her neck and and I realized that then he was in and it was it was all going to be okay <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well even though you grew up on a farm and going from running a food store and, and cooking as well to actually um, farming pigs is a pretty big big step what what were the some of the early challenges you encountered?
0: Obviously, space for the, the for the pigs and what to feed them. but We couldn't find a nutritionist that um, up here that had done any pig formulations for um, nutrition. And so, for the first few years, we were just getting sort of the scrappy food left over from a company called James and Sons, and they were just giving us the stuff off the floor. And I'm pretty sure it was horse food and sheep food and all the bits mixed in. But the pigs pigs grew well on it, and we quickly learnt that you know pigs will grow and grow well on anything. It's just um you know how how do you do it so you get a consistent product so for us we worked with the local feed company to come up with our own diet um which was really good we didn't want any sort of genetically modified grains or artificial bits and pieces antibiotics or you know nothing nasty in it um and and it worked out really well and the the pigs sort of were thriving and that was sort of the first thing was just getting the nutrition right and then obviously Everyone will tell you fences. You've got to have good fences with pigs, or just the hot, hot wire. So there's always pigs out, or um, you know, and then and then farrowing, like keeping um, the piglets safe so they don't get rolled over on and, and everything. But you know, it's like it's it's any animal. And I didn't want to get into like I always thought that I'd be the one to take over mum and dad's cattle farm. Like the we had a start, and I was just assumed I'd be that lucky kid that got to you know inherit the farm. But it didn't work out that way, and because I was doing it on my own, Lockie didn't really want to be involved. You know, growing beef wasn't really an option. Um, and we just saw that niche for the pork. And, you know, we've learned a lot along the way. We'll probably write a book on how not to farm pigs, I reckon, <laughs> before we wrote one on how to farm pigs. Like it's, I mean, we learn every day. There's new things that we learn every day.
1: Well, well, tell us about the environment that that you're in and why it's so good for pig farming, and what is it like on the farm for the pigs?
0: Yeah, we we live on a very flat part of Australia, um, flat floodplain. So, our landscape's typically um, red gum trees and black box trees, um, big open plains basically, and lots of saltbush and native grasses and things. So, and the, the soils are quite a heavy chocolate clay. It's beautiful soil. It holds on to moisture really well. So we don't have a very high rainfall. We get about 350 mils of rain a year. And um, the last couple of years, I don't think we've had an average rainfall at all. Like we didn't get that wet effect that the rest of Australia had. we have. We've, we've only just sort of coming out of drought now. It's typical. We didn't have any rain last winter. So we've been, you know, it's been really, that's the most stressful thing I think is this environment. It's really arid. It's really hot and dry in summer and, typically meant to be wet and very cold in winter. So, I mean, this morning was everything. It was just ice. We had ice on the windscreen. There was ice in the bucket. like the pump freezes. So it's it's very extreme, the weather. So the pigs, the, the Berkshire breed are great because they're very well suited to outdoor um, breeding. If you had a large white out in the open plains and in forested areas, I don't know, they'd survive really well. Um, a, they'd get sunburnt and B, they're not really adapted to that kind of environment, so the, the burkeys are really tough. Um, and as long as they've got you know a wallow in summer and, and shelter and hay in winter, they're pretty happy. We noticed that throughout the drought, not having any um, grass or anything for them to graze on. And we, I was really, I was personally really stressed, and it affected me really deeply. The drought, and um, I just it breaks my heart seeing the, the ground so dry and nothing growing and but the pigs I remember being down the paddock one day and the pigs you know were splashing around in the mud and underneath the trees in their straw and they didn't look stressed but they were really happy so I thought you know it's 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 okay like the environment's always going to be changing as long as the animals are happy that's the main thing
1: well the the pigs are, are free range what does it take to maintain that
0: yeah, I mean we've we've always just had humongous big open ranging paddocks and really that um we noticed during the drought that we just couldn't run the animals like that and we we've shifted towards a more um when we get our when we get our cover crops up and everything's very vegetated and recovered um we'll move them in a more regenerative kind of manner so small paddocks moving them often and that and that's going to be better for our soil um better for the animals they're always going to have grass if we manage the farm like that and we've we've always just thought that that big open open plains is you know that's how I grew up paddocks big open paddocks you know heaps of room to range but it's actually not that great for the soil so and the and the ground cover so you want those animals running high volume across that land in a short amount of time and then you rest it for longer so our, our farm wasn't getting enough rest and we just noticed that specifically in the in the latest drought that you know, water was pooling on top of the soil and um, we weren't maintaining ground cover. And I was like, we need to change the way we're doing it. So we're in the middle of that now. I hopefully see some good changes.
1: Well, farming isn't the only thing that you do. There's the butchering and also the the deli, the charcuterie. Uh, tell us about what it takes uh, from the growing the pig side of things to get the right product for what you do with the butchering and the charcuterie
0: yeah I mean we we started off using um other butchers, so I used to take the pigs to the abattoir with the, with the kid in the back seat and the pigs in the in the trailer and drop them off and a couple of days later we'd go back over and um go to the gummbow butchers and Tom and I would you know I'd just watch basically and tell him what we wanted and he would teach me a lot about the butchering, and I thought you know that doesn't look that much. that doesn't look, that doesn't look that hard and um so one day I jumped on the knives and gave him a hand, and I just really enjoyed it because I remember when I was a kid, I thought I always wanted to be a vet. And I remember cutting up dead animals. <laughs> if I found a dead animal, I'd cut it open and have a look inside. And I was just fascinated. And But I got the same kick out of um, butchering our animals. And I thought, God, this is actually, I really like this. And when the driving around became really, oh, it just became sort of warming out with the kids and everything. And we couldn't get our smoking done up, up where we are. No one had a licence. So we'd send it down to Peter Boucher when, when Troy was working there and, They'd make our bacon and ham, they would have to pick it up before we went to market. So there was a lot of running around and a lot of miles, and it didn't really suit, you know, having kids yeah. doing all that. So I, um, so we cleaned out the carport basically and built a butcher shop. And Locke once again just shook his head and said, What are you doing? She's all right, it's all right, it's gonna be fine. I can, I can do this. And he's like, Who he, he can get to butcher? And I was like, It's fine, we can do it. So I think Frida. My second daughter, she was newborn, and that's when we did that. Um, so Locke would bring her out for a feed at like two thirty in the morning, and I'd still be out there practicing away and um, and trying to get our get our meat ready for orders for that week. And it went like that for a little while until I got the knack of it, and it became easier. And, and then I got someone to help pack, and then and but then I'm, and it was great because we could give the feedback directly back to the feed company, it, or I could see what was going on on the farm and see the effects of that in the meat. So if the, you know, if we found like sometimes the meat would slip away from the fat and we'd, we'd tell the nutritionist to would back off on the oil a little bit and and I think that now they don't even put oil in it. Um, so there was a really good relationship between what we were doing on the farm and the quality of the meat and we've been able to have control of that process the whole way because we've always done the the butchering so... I mean, when and and then obviously pigs yield so well and you you get so much use out of them that I actually thought it was a bit of a waste just to to eat it as a roast or just to eat it as fresh meat. And um, when we went to France, we got to eat this amazing charcuterie and I couldn't actually find anything like it in Australia. And I thought, you know, we've got this amazing product. We need to preserve it. And it was just this real want to preserve it so it lasted longer and it suited our business model too because we're a small farm and small numbers we could get more yield and more serves out of a pig if we preserved it and sold it in smaller portions so that's when the charcuterie dream was born and it was basically just trial and error um reading lots of books and spending lots of time just making things and getting the humidity and the temperatures right and yeah it's it's been a bit of a journey, but now like everything's used like we don't waste anything we use you know the bones boil down into broths and things, and I'm doing all the butchering now um we don't actually have a butchery we don't have a butcher on site anymore um so i'm I've spent a few years away I've spent a few years away from that processing, and um thought it would be better to have butchers in, but I've quickly realized this week that like I, I really do love that part of it, and I love being able to produce everything and and use all the waste and um it's been really it's been really good and i I love working with our team and and i get a lot of satisfaction out of using the whole animal and um just the amazing products that we can make so
1: tell us a bit about the charcuterie that you're making have you did you have any failures on the way and what's what sort of successes what, what do you really love that you're making at the moment
0: Um, I really love the, um, at the moment, I'm really loving the broths because they're so versatile. You can do anything with them and they use all that waste, like the bones and the fat and things that you would normally just piff out or give to the dogs. We're actually turning them into nutritious goods. So I really love that side of it. Um, But, I mean, you can't beat whole cured mussels like Capricolo, Lonza, a little French ham. Those three products, I think, are just so delicious and I never get tired of eating them and they're just that's the we learnt along the way different ways to cure and different ways to um like different lengths of time of curing them now. And whereas when we first started we'd salt everything down and leave them for sort of ten days and and we just wash them off and hang them up, cover them in spice, but now we cure them down for three weeks in the spice and the salt and then at the end we equalize it. With water for a few hours and then and then dry them and hang them up and we don't put any extra spices on them they they kind of they oxidate when we when you put spices on the outside so yeah we've we've just always trying to tweak it and make it better and um, we do a lot of pH testing now whereas before we just use anything but now we're sort of focusing on larger animals and getting that real depth of flavor into the meats and making sure that they're you know really hitting that that sweet mark um well we'd love to make salami but that's we've got someone in sydney making that for us today actually he's doing the first batch so um yeah i, I think the salami will be next level good we're using old sows um that have sort of reached the end of their breeding life and for us that's, that's the ultimate thing is you know getting value out of every single animal and and the girls that aren't breeding well i mean they're the guys rang me from Sydney today and said these pigs are unbelievable. <laughs> I'm like I oh, know that's why we're, that's why they're there. So uh, I think that'll be exciting. That that next sort of step in, with the charcuterie that we're doing.
1: Well, if pig farming and butchering and making charcuterie isn't enough for you to do, you also established a cooperative to build a community-owned micro abattoir in Barham as well. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, like, back in the day when I was telling you about when we used to take the pigs down to the abattoir with the kids in the back seat, I mean, that was a half an hour drive and they rang one day and just said, don't send your pigs, we're, we're closed. And I said, oh, I'll send them tomorrow. And they said, no, you can't, like, we're closed. this just, we're done. And um, it was a real shock because they were family owned and operated and at the time I, th- I remember thinking, oh, maybe we should just build our own. But then we you know we've spoken to other farmers about it and they were like you know maybe maybe we could all um do a mobile abattoir and we looked at that and it wasn't really going to be a viable thing for our area because everyone's so fast like spread apart so we sent our pigs to the next abattoir along which was a chuka, so an, an hour away and then nearly a year to the date they closed their doors um with no warning and we had to go to vanilla and it was just a snap like the pigs were on the trailer ready to go and I just remember the feeling of insecurity was, I was like, this is this is our business and this is our livelihood and it's worked so well because we've had an abattoir and if we're going through this, other people must be in the same boat. So we called a meeting at our house and we had 40 people, like 40 farmers came around and had a few beers and a few snags and all decided that we should build our own abattoir and um, that we'd set up a cooperative. So that... You know, we just felt power to the farmers. You know, we we all need it. We've all got the same common goal that we want an ethical um, kill, that we don't have to drive, you know, three or four hours one way to get them. We'll be able to, you know, have our own delivery system. And we thought the only way that we're going to have a secure future with farming livestock in this region is if we build our own abattoir. And So last year we were lucky enough to get the council on board um, and they helped us secure enough money, so over $2 million, $2 million to build a micro abattoir. So the DA, like development applications in the process at the moment, we've done all the pre-works on their site. Um, this is going to happen. I just can't believe it. it's been like five years in the making and we've, we've got a really great group of people with the same vision and I think that's why cooperatives work so well and, and, and last for so long is because you've, You've all got an invested interest in it. We've all invested money in it Um, and we all have the same common goal. So unless that changes one day, it'll be a really successful model that hopefully we can replicate to other areas. But I know that other regions have trouble with exactly the same kind of thing and we don't know. Like JBS has just bought Riverlea, and then Hardwick's has been sold. So the decentralising it is, um, you know, the meat industry in Australia can't keep – it doesn't support – small farmers but models like this will
1: how has pig farming enriched your life
0: oh i can't imagine my life without pigs now it's um no i can't it's really strange it's just like who we are now like and it sounds so strange and when i try and look at ourselves from the outside and look back in like we're essentially pig farmers like (laughs) we never thought that we would be pig farmers but i don't know like it's it's very grounding. It's taught me a lot of um, patience and life lessons. It's also given me a huge um, sense of satisfaction in growing pigs in a paddock, free range, the way they should be farmed, and that's always been very important to us. Um, is letting the pigs just be pigs, and especially helping the Berkshire breed along. So, you know, if we don't eat these rare breeds, then they won't be here us, Australia's only got a certain amount of genetics. We can't import any genetics. So maintaining that breed and making it better and more resilient and more suited to our conditions and um, suited for the products that we make is, it's really, really important to us. And I just, I I can't, I can't imagine not doing it, to be honest.
1: What do you think is so special about pork?
0: Um, I just, I think, remember the first time that we tasted our pork was the night before the first farmer's market in Barham and I remember tasting it and it just didn't taste like anything I'd ever tasted before and I just think it's amazing that an animal just because of its breed and how it's raised can taste so good and I think pork is so nutritious and you can get you make so many different products out of it. I think that's what makes it so special is that it's so versatile and, and the, the pigs are so good for the paddocks as well. Like we don't use any fertilisers or we don't plough and you know, the pigs do all that work for us. So there's a real, there's a real harmony in what we do, and they're they're a massive part of it. We couldn't do it with sheep, and we couldn't do it with cattle. Um, you know, the pigs are the, the pigs are the golden ticket. <laughs> the are the most wondrous animal, and they're just so cool to sit. Like we can sit at our dinner table and look out and see our pigs running around the paddocks, and there's something very grounding about that.
1: When you get the opportunity to sit down and eat your pork in a restaurant, how does it feel and is there some experiences that you can tell us about?
0: I'm oh, really, really proud actually. The most recent, well, there's obviously not much dining happening in the last 12 months, but um, most recently we went to Fire Door in Sydney. We were lucky enough to um, nab a spot at the bar and I just sort of sat down with the staff and you know, good could share our story about what we're doing and where we, where we see our business heading and, you know, how important the pigs are to our farm and how we're farming regeneratively. And And then we got to sit at the table and they opened the doors and they watched everyone, we watched everyone come in and, and then Lennox cooked for us, like right in front of us. He cut up, you know, cut these huge big racks and flamed them over the grill and then we watched his um, sous chef cut them up and, we ate them and it was, everyone in the restaurant was eating our pork and the guy sitting next to us, he was like, oh, this is the best pork ever. And he looked over and he goes, Are you guys the farmers? <laughs> like, Yeah, that's, that's our pork. And he's like, it's amazing. This is so good. And it was like this really crazy moment where we were like 900 kilometres from home and this random guy next to us was just eating our pork and he, he could actually tell us face to face. So it was it was pretty epic. <laughs> like those kind of things, you never get tired of. Going out and eating your own produce at a restaurant, it's all very surreal. And, um, but it's important because these guys that use our pork, they care about where it comes from. And those relationships with these chefs and restaurants is, you know, an integral part of what we do. And we don't work with people who don't care about where their produce comes. We're, you know, very picky about who uses our stuff. And, um, and it's paid off because you have these long, long lasting relationships with people.
1: Now that you can get good. Uh, pork locally. How do you like to cook it at home?
0: Oh, this. Oh, I don't um, – we don't eat a lot of pork at home, to be honest. We don't eat that much meat, but when we do eat the pork at home, um, I I still think you cannot beat a crumbed pork schnitzel. There's something about a crumbed pork schnitzel with parmesan and all the fresh herbs out of the garden in it. It's just so crunchy and yummy and sweet and you keep them nice and pink in the middle. And I've, I could eat schnitzels till the cows come home or till the pigs come home. Like they're just, it's not, they're not too fatty, you know, like it's its beautiful stuff. But then I also am like totally in love with our ramen broth at the moment because the ramen's just, just you feel like you're injecting your body full of goodness. It just makes you feel so good and warm. And um, so, yeah, they're probably my two favourite things that we're eating at the moment.
1: Do you have a secret tip to making good ramen at home?
0: Yeah, just um just use good bones basically and just boil them down until they get um until the bones become you can sort of squish them between your fingers till they become really soft. So that means all the goodnesses come out of the bones and then we use an organic um rice miso that we get from one of the farmers markets, you know, Castleman, and I think those that is essential to the flavour and the umami in the in the broth. And you know, you get old soft poached egg and I don't even put extra pork in it. I just have it like that with noodles and fresh chives. But I think you've got to boil bones down enough so you're getting all the fat and the, and the marrow out of there to make it really, really good for you.
1: Now that you are a pig farmer and, and as you mentioned earlier, it surprised you a little little bit, but what do you love about what you do and the life that you guys live now?
0: I love it that the kids are so involved. Like the kids – um You know, as a family, we can do everything together like we we planted. The kids and I planted 700 trees on our farm a couple of weeks ago and right before it rained. And I think farming is a game of um, timing and we've been so busy over the years that we've never really quite nailed the timing of, you know, when it's going to rain and getting some pastures in or getting a cover crop in. So it's like this game that you play every year because no two seasons are ever the same. So it's this constantly changing environment that you're always learning from and always trying to improve. So that that is never, I'll never tire of that sort of, like do tire of it when it doesn't rain, I tire of it. But because it's, because we're always there to to see the changing seasons and to get the kids involved and they love it. Like seeing the kids on the farm, like they ride their motorbikes and, you know we can we're on the edge of the bush so we can just duck out to the bush and go mushrooming or you know we've got this incredible place where we live that just nurtures this gorgeous relationship with the land and the and the environment and the kids and we we all thrive on it we love it we're you know a kilometer from the Murray River so we jump on our boat and go to the pub for dinner and boat home again so that those kind of things it's what I love about where we live and, um, you know, just seeing how pigs change the landscape as well and and how the soil's been improved in time that we've had the farm. It's, um, it's pretty special.
1: It all started with Doris and you chasing her through the property. Um, have you had any um, mishaps in the years that you've been pig farming since?
0: Oh, endless. Endless amount of mishaps. I remember when... We didn't have the farm set up yet, and we had um, we used to have a boxer dog called Reggie, and the pigs because we live right we're literally on the edge of the forest. The pigs, so Doris, Wanda, and Betty, and our boar Kevin Bacon, (laughs) they would go. (laughs) (laughs) So they would all take out off out into the bush every day because I remember there was a flood that year, so they're out wallowing in the um, flood water. And at the end of the day, Reggie would go round them up and bring them back. So that was like a, we didn't know whether they were going to come back. They'd always, but they'd come back every night and snuggle up and go to bed. I mean, when we first had Doris, she used to sleep on the back step with Reggie. So she thought she was a dog for a while and she just became too, too she got too big and I was like, come on, out of here. <laughs> like, this is just not cool. Like, <laughs> So yeah, you have your sort of funny little moments where, you know, piglets get out and you, you know they chase bike riders down the road and mostly good things happen and you know pigs are comical creatures they're always doing something funny and making you laugh or you know biting you on the leg because you've <laughs> picked up that <their> piglet <laughs> I've got I've got tusk marks masks in the back of my leg from um a boar um throwing his head at me because I got in between him and another boar and yeah like it, it's mainly it's mainly good mainly good things
1: well, Lauren, we've loved having you on The Crackling today to hear your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'd love to catch up again soon.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Anthony.
1: This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.